Screenless. The TV drama is imagined. The work and the guests are real. Making a soundtrack. Opening scene and action. So that means we are having a Christmas break. Do you, do you see? Do you get it? Yeah, yeah, I've got it. Break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, we are going to take a little break so we can relax over the holiday. Holiday. Drink a little wine. Make a little love. Drink a little wine. Have a mince pie or two. Yeah. The odd, the odd cocktail. Yeah, and then maybe in the evening, when it's night time, we will get down. Down from where? I don't know, but we'll be getting down. Yeah. So, yes, we are going to have a Christmas break. We are going to be back on, let's see, January the 10th. January the 10th, yeah. So it gives us a nice little break uh, and a chance to kind of catch up with things. So in this episode, we are having a look at track nine again. We are, yep. My, mm. my doodles. Your doodles. And uh, we are going to be chatting with... Composer, fellow composer, Ian Arbour. We are indeed, yes. Who most recently co-composed the soundtrack to The Capture. He did, Which was a fabulous, fabulous BBC drama, uh, which was part exciting, part terrifying. Uh, With all the CCTV malarkey that can go on. Uh, Yeah. So, without any more ado... Is it carol time? Is it time to... Cue the music? Cue the music. Cue the music. Track nine, part two. Track nine. We're still on the event. We are. Last time, I yes, I was looking at the strings, which I did, and then I fired them over to you to albumify the the sound of the track. Yes. I'll be honest, I did struggle with it. I thought it was going to be easier than it was. It's almost the reverse of how I normally work. So normally what I would do is, it's quite an action-y cue. There's a lot going on. Um, What I would normally do is sort of piano roll it out very loosely to picture if I was doing this, usually using one or two pianos, and then go in and start building from the kind of bass upwards. But obviously you'd done a lot of that already, so it was sounding quite big and quite full. And so it came down to, well, where can I you know, enhance stuff or is there anything missing from this bit and, and kind of do it that way. So I'd struggled with it for a while and I probably spent about half a day trying ideas and it failing miserably and not liking any of it before I finally sort of settled into it. So synth-wise it's done, but I still want to do more because I think it needs more percussion. Mm, yes, definitely. The Cat Synth obviously featured quite heavily in this, um, the Cork Monopoly, which we've used before as well. And I did have a little go at a little bit of percussion stuff with uh, SH101, just these little filtered sort of hi-hat things. Is that the panning from right to left? Yeah. Kind of vice versa? Yeah. And then the Monopoly was just doing, that was just doing arpeggios. So that I, I just used the arpeggiator on that. That sounds awesome, by the way.
Yeah, it's really cool. It's got the Monopoly's brilliant because it has this really weird effects section, which is not effects like you think, you know, all delay and chorus or whatever. It's you know, it's it's basically a modulation matrix, so you can sort of feed bits back on itself and stuff, which is really cool. Um, so it's got some of that on it, but it's also it's got, hence the name Monopoly. Um, you can have it set up to have all of the all four oscillators in unison or you can have it set up so that you can play four note chords and if you have it set up like that and then use the arpeggiator it actually cycles through the different um, oscillators one after the other so you can then turn them off or adjust the pitch of them and stuff so you can get some really interesting stuff uh, so that's what You've i did use that. that before as well on another track yes yes i have which is why i thought i was okay Absolutely. to use it again yes good tie-in when you introduce them it's about 48 about 48 seconds you said being pedantic yeah. but it really works there because it feels like it's stepping up yeah that, that was yeah. the idea um and the, the, I, I really want to add like i say some more percussive stuff so i want to add some fairly hot kind of distorted drums but filtered so that they're not too you know that that kind of um low mids frequency stuff that can just sit underneath in a couple of places but I haven't got that quite right. It's a very specific yeah. sound I'm after, so I need to spend a bit of time. Oh, that's cool. It. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, th I think it's in really good shape. You're in the right direction. It's just now just finishing it off, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a big one, so it needs the time spent on it to make it right. Rather than I don't, I don't think it's some of the some of the earlier cues. Uh, there's a lot less instrumentation to mm. them, mm. and th those were easier to do because there's there's just literally less to do with this i think there's a lot to do but the audio spectrum's already quite full yeah, so it's yeah. about finding the right yeah the right things um so there's a little bit of trial and error but also in there you've got all the individual audio tracks if you need to take something out to put something in then you know fill your boots yeah i, w I was thinking uh, at one point i was even thinking of um doing some funky sort of <laughs> filter sweeps or chops and stuff on the actual strings and things as well ah. so uh yeah, I'll, I'll I'll see. I'll see whether any of that works or not. Mm. It might, it might not. It's it, all these things. They sound great in your head, but then sometimes when you actually get round to doing it, it's like, oh no. Yeah, if you could just work on that, have it done by maybe Boxing Day, that'd be uh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. Well, I, I don't think I've got anything planned. No. That's great. No, then. no. Christmas is cancelled. The kids are getting cold. <laughs> no, that's cool. And then after that, we have obviously track ten. And the yep. theme tune, which theme I'm hoping tune. to visit you once more so we can actually have a crack ah, at that together. Awesome. Yeah, so that'll be early January. So all coming together. Yeah, very nice. Excellent. Shall we uh, go behind the scenes? Let's go behind the scenes. Okay. Ian Arbour is a film and television composer known for his work on the BBC Proms theme, BBC One Thriller The Capture, Netflix series Medici, BBC Two Comedy Quacks, My Name is Lenny, starring John Hurt, award-winning documentaries on Bross, After the Screaming Stops and Usain Bolt, I Am Bolt, and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Ian is an emerging talent in the film and music world, with a growing portfolio of work across a variety of genres. Ian is bringing a fresh and unique compositional style to each project. Ian Arbour, welcome to the Making a Soundtrack podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for being here. Welcome. So 
When did you first want to become a composer and how did you get your first job? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, so I guess I've been aware of music and film for a long time from a very young age, but I've never really... I remember even in my teens, uh, you know, I, I was always the film music guy of all my friends. Uh, you know, I was obsessed with John Williams, Steven Spielberg, Bernard Herrmann and Hitchcock. Um, but I didn't really fully understand or realise it was a, a possible way of earning money. I never really... I, I always loved film music, um, but I was always kind of recording local bands and producing, and I, I saw that as more of a potential career in my teens. Um, so it wasn't until university that I really decided to become a film composer because um, I studied film com I studied music production at university and one of our modules was film scoring uh, actually my teacher was Jonathan Vincent I don't know if you know him oh, really yes, great yes, yeah, composer yeah. Oh, wow. I uh, still see him very often at the composing events um, but yeah we had a talk I think it was in my first or second year at university with David Arnold and he came and talked about his scores for Bond um, and Independence Day and whatnot um, I, I literally had a, a light bulb moment while he was talking uh, when I realised you could write music for film and television and earn money. Um, and I think mine was, mine was quite an interesting um, realisation because a lot of people say they wanted to be a film composer since they were 10 or whatever mm. and they did everything possible. And I didn't realise until I was 18, 19 that really it was, it was uh, I could actually do that as a career. So I focused on production music production recording and kind of decided originally that I wanted to go into a studio and be an assistant and then eventually recording engineer or producer. So, yeah, so I guess that David Arnold talk um, was the moment when I said, I'm just going to put all my focus in that I've got three years of university. I might as well spend all my time meeting short filmmakers and start writing more film score music with a view to doing this professionally. Um, obviously, having studied music production and recorded a lot of bands and musicians in my teens, that ended up being a super useful kind of early um, early learning before yeah. becoming a film composer. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I it was a similar path for me. It was quite late on for me, but yeah, there are loads and loads of production stuff first, which I think is a is a real bonus if you can if you can go into this. Um, with a solid understanding of how to put things together. It means that all of your stuff... Um, it's like when when I first started getting into this and Sam was working for George Fenton, I said to Sam, oh, could you, you know, perhaps give my showreel to George? I'd, I'd love a little bit of feedback. Uh, the feedback that came back was, composition-wise, it was okay, but I should be producing everything that Sam makes. So... You know, even then mm -hmm. it was kind of, you know, obviously my stuff sounded a little bit different, a little bit more polished than everyone else's, which was because I'd spent so long recording bands and doing all that. Yeah. yeah like you. Well, that's, that's it. And also, I mean, even if you look at the big boys in Hollywood, obviously not going to say any names, but there are certain guys who clearly are absolute geniuses in writing these massive, uh, you know, really densely orchestrated melodic pieces and scores. Yeah. Um, but it's not all about that and a lot of the guys there who aren't necessarily writing um you know big symphonic scores with you know big john williams motifs but it is all about the production mm -hmm. and the, the they are these are like artist records it's not really like film scoring used to be they're super polished pop records yeah. that sound so well produced 
And, you know, you, you, how often do you actually get a chance to actually write a score which is just orchestra? You're always going to, nine times out of ten, there's going to be some sort of electronic edge in film and television yep. at the moment. So that's why production, you know, it has to be produced so well yeah. to mix these two elements together, especially when you can't record live strings. Yeah, I think, live orchestra. I think sometimes there's a downside as well. Like, for example, on things like the Sarah Jane Adventures, when they do the international versions of stuff, I'd get asked to do not covers, but a version of a song something similar to this song that could go on the international one instead. And there'd be some um, amazingly produced pop tune or something. And you had to then do something that sounded as good as this pop thing. And, you know, these people had spent, I don't know, six months, eight months, 10 months, 12 months, maybe honing this one single and Which is also like the pinnacle of their life. Yeah. That's like their best song ever. This is what they do. This is what they do. And they've channeled everything into it. And this is something that gets tagged onto. And you have to then just, you know, conjure something up. But also as part of the temp track then becomes emotionally attached. So, yeah. you know, they're going to be kind of subconsciously associating that production value. Yeah. It's kind of a subject we can't really avoid, I think, as film mm-hmm. composers and television composers, media composers, is obviously temp music. Um, the, the the recreation and sound of likes of songs, like, I, I hate that now. I used yeah. to love it, and it used to be part of my kind of pitch, to, especially on lower-budget things where you knew they couldn't afford the songs. I'd be like, oh, it's fine, you know, you can't afford the songs, I'll recreate that song and this song is it's all good i'll just do it part of the score and even if i think then it ends up being an actual score cue it does end up being it needs to be as close as possible to that song and you end up doing it and then that's the one thing that you regret on the whole thing you know you love your score but why the hell did i try and recreate that marilyn manson track yeah it was a bad idea yeah yeah and that's an actual example very legally dicey nowadays isn't it going down that route yeah exactly so no i hate that but the temp the temp um music side of it is a whole other thing but again you know it's it's also relevant because a lot of the temp that i tend to hear tends to be Hans zimmer and a lot of you know the one or two kind of massive names in hollywood and again those tracks are produced to such a high level mm. with you know different sections of the orchestras recorded to the highest possible recording spec at the best studio in the world and then you have to use your samples to try and sound similar to it yeah it's 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 a tough one i think we could probably do a whole podcast on the uh, pros and cons of temp music yeah and obviously there are pros and that's the thing it's, su- it's such an easy thing to say um you know ideally we don't have any temp music which is true but at some stage the, the temp music has to be there especially yeah. that the higher the budget thing the more likely you're going to need temp music not only it might be that they haven't hired a composer yet, which just can be annoying, but they just need to edit, not necessarily edit with temp, but they need to show people the episode or the film with music there. And if the composer isn't quick enough to, you know, at the same time, you know, big Hollywood movies, they quite an early stage start testing the film. Yeah. And you could, the composer could be on board for a year, but you haven't recorded anything. So if you are happy to never hear temp and then be the guy that writes and uses your sample mock-ups for Mission Impossible or whatever it is, which then goes in the screening and then people then go, actually, the score sounds weird because they don't understand mm. the difference between samples and a real orchestra. Yeah. And then you get sacked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there are 
there are pros and cons, but sorry, I'm going on to your other podcast now about the pros and cons of temp music. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, okay. the other thing is that it can be uh, it can be a useful shorthand. You know, sometimes communication can be difficult with a director or, or a producer, but actually if they've put a piece of music and they go, actually, I think this really works, there's something mm. about the tone of this music that really works, that's a quicker way. Yeah rather than sitting there and desperately trying to talk it through and them not getting their point across. Yes. Yeah, well, uh, the thing that, the thing is always a shame for me when directors or producers hire composers, even though when you get to that stage of the conversation, yeah, it's great because you have a piece of music that you can demonstrate what you want. But what excites me would be to hire one of you guys or anyone and just to hear what their natural kind of response would be musically to a film or a script or whatever it is whatever gets whatever gets the juices flowing uh, that's exciting to me and if that's wrong that's a benefit because you know what's not what is yeah. not right but it could be that it's spot on and it's not what the director imagined but it's the composer who hires voice yeah and that is worth pursuing before getting to that point those are always the scores that you're happiest with i think I've, I, you know, I've done stuff before where um, I've scored a scene and the director comes in and it plays, and they're like, "Okay, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit lost for words actually." And it's like, "Oh, you know, what have I done wrong?" And they're like, "No, no, 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 I, it's just totally the absolute opposite of what I, I was just wasn't expecting that at all. It's perfect, you know." Mm. Um, exactly. And th- those moments are just wonderful, and they are. It's always the stuff that you're most proud of. Yeah, and that's another reason why I quite enjoy pitching because I've had to pitch for so many things over my career and there's been so, like, 90% of stuff that I haven't got, maybe even 95% of stuff that I didn't get. But those pitches are always that magic moment where you just have that inspiration, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours, and it's just your response to a video or to a script or the story without any sort of input, maybe a rough brief uh, or rough idea. But that's... I love that phase. Mm. And when you come in on a movie with two weeks to go and the whole 125-minute movie is tempted with 124 minutes of massive music, yeah. it's just like, uh, what can I do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Ian, we're obviously making a, an imagined TV drama soundtrack, Dan and I. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be, I've noticed a, a kind of movement that is kind of anti-music in TV drama. They feel it kind of gets in the way of the dialogue or the storytelling in some way. I was wondering what role you think that music has in a TV drama on the storytelling side. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the... Uh, what, what what function do you think it should provide to the overall production? I think it's clearly essential. There's certainly a difference between television and film, and I think in a strange way, I know, as you're saying how things are changing for the bad in some sense. That's coming down to, I think, a lot of the post-post-production elements where people start to worry about, you know, the dialogue being clear and having to put the music down. But at the creative stage, if you're working with a great director on a, on a television series, and I mean, I haven't done that many, but the two kind of BBC series that I've done, um, either the showrunner, writer, exec producer, or the director have been so into music, it's... They're, they see the role of music in drama as essential the same way of making a feature film where you have, you know, both both the cases I worked with them, they wanted motifs to represent characters. 
it was essential that the music diverted, like the capture, to use that as an example, the, it's a complete mystery and no one really knows who's good or bad. And the music plays a big part in pushing people, manipulating, I don't really like using that word, but it, we are manipulating people to think that this guy might be bad when he's actually good, or is he? And vice versa. And, you know, there was a kind of a bad guy within the capture, which was, um, I just did in quotation marks for a podcast. <laughs> yeah. so a bad guy in quotation marks um, being kind of a government organisation or an element of this organisation, what they do, but it's not a specific person. So we needed to have a specific sound to represent them, essentially a motif. So... I totally get what you're saying in terms of where, uh, for me, the worst part is when you go through all of that with a director, such detail, big melodies, um, and then it gets to the stage when a corporation um, then say, the dialogue needs to be clearer, push the sound down, uh, push the sound side down, or maybe we should have a function where you can, someone can mute the soundtrack. Yeah. You might as well have a function where you say, Let's lose this character because yeah. yeah. it's a piece of art and the music needs to go with the cinematography and the dialogue and the story. And, you know, scores in television just as much as film are part of the storytelling. Yeah. And it's, it's not necessarily the same story. Well, it's all the same story, but it could be doing something different than the dialogue can't do or the visuals can't do. The score is so essential to that art form. Mm. And also at the same time, you know, budgets and creativity in televisions... You know, a lot of people w won't argue that it's kind of better than film at the moment. Mm. There's more exciting things coming out of television series than there are in film. And, and back in the day, you know, even not that long ago, 10, 20 years ago, television wasn't as high quality as it is now. And I think they were maybe dumbing down scores a little bit more on purpose. To, to These days it is much more artistic. They need to have film scores. We, we're having live orchestras perform TV scores now, which was so much rarer back in the day. I agree 100% with what you just said. And I think people's nervousness about the dialogue and everything, I think it's about getting it right, getting that balance right as well, isn't it? I'm sure in some dramas you, you might find that the music might be a bit loud or it might be a bit, that's a mixing thing. That's not necessarily yeah. the music you've come up with. Yeah, I've actually been in a dub where that very thing has happened, where the music's really loud, it's really swelling and going for it. And someone said, well, well what about the dialogue? And, and the producer said, you don't need the dialogue at this point. We know what's going on. Um, you don't need that. What you need is you need that power and that emotion from that music. That's a really interesting point. And that exactly just I uh, flashed up a scene from Interstellar um, when you said that. Because a lot of people complained, and if you remember, when Interstellar yeah. came out, it all went to the IMAX, and a lot of people complained about not hearing dialogue in certain moments. And for me, it was it was so obvious that it, the dialogue was not essential at all to the specific scene. I can't remember exactly what scene it is, but there's a really climatic scene. Maybe it's when they're docking, and then it becomes so claustrophobic, and you can almost the music becomes so loud that it's the music rather than the sound design, the sound effects that drown out the dialogue. Yeah. And I, it's like one of my favourite moments in the movie. Yeah. And then a lot of people come out, oh, the music's too loud. And I remember writing a little comment saying like, it's not about that, and a little rant, and then Hans Zimmer liked yeah. it. And I was like, yeah, yeah he knows. Yeah, he knows, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he knows what they're doing. <laughs> nice one. Uh, well, you mentioned the capture. So let's briefly talk about that. Recently co-scored that with um, Dave Roundtree. Yeah. And we've done quite, because we are collaborating, we've done a few bits about um, collaborating. How did you go about working with that with another composer? Yeah, okay. Well, I, 
probably linking this into what you asked earlier, actually, um, partly about uh, temp and the process with Dave. I mean, me and Dave have worked together since 2015 on a few different projects. Mm-hmm. We did a, a little um, Mo Farah documentary back in the day, and then we did the Bross documentary, which came out last Christmas, but we did that like two years ago. Yeah. Um, so we kind of dabbled and worked together, and we, I think the fundamental thing with us two is we really like each other and get on, um, and we're quite different characters, but we're good friends. Um, so that was a good starting point because we just know we, we just love working with each other because we, you know, that was just so important to really be friends, I think, in that scenario, which I'm sure you guys um, get as well. Uh, well, we hate each other really, but, uh, you know, <laughs> put on a brave face. Yeah. <laughs> that happens too. I'm kidding. <laughs> when you work with a director you hate, you have to, you have to put on a brave face. Um, yeah, so for the capture, because me and Dave, uh, when we got the gig, we, and this is Ben Shanann, a uh, lot of respect for him, the director. He's brilliant and he loves music. Um, but for the capture, they, they, they hadn't, they used some temp here and there, but their main issue was they didn't know what the music needed to be. And maybe that was a blessing for us, um, that it wasn't obvious that it needed to sound like Jason Bourne or needed to sound like uh, Gone Girl or whatever. They really had no idea and they were dropping in bits of temp to try and work it out. But their kind of pitch to us initially was like, we don't know what the, can I swear? Oh, I can beat. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know what the f*** going on in this. We don't know what we want to do for the score. We don't know, they were panicking about it. So when we came on board, me and Dave, um, basically after talking to the director, like came to the conclusion that the best idea would be just to write some music, write some suites of music to the scenes, but not necessarily to the action. Just three or four minute suites of music of what we think it w- is what they need. Um, and we knew that there needed to be kind of a, a hybrid between electronics and orchestral in that he wanted strings, he wanted melodies, but he also wanted like quite modern and futuristic sounding electronics. Mm. So that's why me and Dave got the gig because that was our pitch. That's how we worked together. And I'll explain a little bit about that in a bit. Um, but this is why that was such a refreshing um, process. And I think it was probably the most ideal way that you can hire a film composer on a film or television in that we came in had um, plenty of scenes and scripts none of it was tempt and me and dave just got together and wrote how we like to write with each other three or four minute suites we wrote like probably six or seven sent them to the director he said i love these these three feel a little bit too electronic or a little bit too melodic or whatever Um, and then we ran with it and wrote six more within a few days and they sent them to him and he's like, ah, oh, these ones are great. We've just been tapping this in in episode one and it's working really great for this whole sequence. And then he'll send us sequence sequences that he's used our temp music in to show which ones are working best. And then we get the, you know, soft locks of episodes one, two and three. And 90% of the episodes are temped with the music we've just been writing, wow, the suites cool. we've just been writing. And we're like, this is amazing. Such a good way to work. Yeah. The edit is evolving with the music, the music that we've written, including the pitch tracks we wrote for it. And the director's going out of his way to make sure that he's using the music that we're doing because he realizes that you can't temp it and it's not, it needs to be a really unique combination and tone and sound. Um, and, and you know, by the time we got to episode six, just every single episode had been temped with the different themes for different characters and you know he'd taken the stems out and used it a specific way and we're like oh that's genius he's put two cues together we should give him a composer <laughs> credit <laughs> that's brilliant so yeah so 
but just on just kind of connecting that into what you're saying earlier because um that was probably the i don't think i've ever had such a good process from being on board to i mean just the whole the whole of the capture from start to finish was a dream even though the time you know towards the end we were delivering an episode a week yeah. um but knowing that that episode was coming the once it was locked it had pretty much all of our music temped in there anyway you know, it was it was so much easier rather than it just being full of Trent Reznor or Hans Zimmer and then yeah. having to then convince them why time isn't working in that scene and it should be the theme for the show or whatever. But in terms of me and Dave, um, uh, I can't even know what the question was. <laughs> how does it work? Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> Collaboration. How does it work? Yeah, so, so we, we'd dab- dabbled on a couple of projects together. We had a great time in the Bross documentary. Like, that was just so much fun. And, you know, we were filling in the gaps for... We were kind of um, representing the emotional side of the documentary. It's very emotional doc um, and the more inspirational moments and probably trying to help make it funnier with really inspiring music in funny moments. But on the capture, the capture kind of was our chance to really show show off our duo collaboration, I suppose, because um, we knew Dave's an expert at electronics, obviously percussion as well. Um, but he has all of these, he has like a rack of analog synths and they all sound incredible. I'm not, I, I'm in, I love synths, but I'm not, I would never say I was a, a, an analog synth virtuoso or anything. Um, but see, my background's more melody driven orchestral stuff. Um, I love the orchestra, I love melodies, I love strings and piano. Um, so just because of how different we are, if we then know we have a, pro- a product that's electronics and big melodies with strings and piano, it just it was a kind of a dream for us to say, look, this is this is what we can do, and that's why it was so great to then come on board and be putting these suites together because we could just do what we love writing together. So it worked. It worked really well. You know, me and Dave work on every single cue together. It was never a case of you do one M one, I do one M two. We would go at it together. Dave might come up with an idea, not necessarily just on electronics. You know, uh, if I was writing a piano theme and then I had an electronic kind of undertow, I probably would just use a crappy synth to give the idea. And then I'd send it to Dave and then he'd put it through his machines and change it. And it comes out like raw and analog and it sounds bloody amazing. So we both kind of, you know, he does piano stuff and string stuff as well. So we both can do everything, but we know what our, we know what our skill sets are. We know what our expertise is. So I just knew that if I had anything that I uh, sent to Dave, he would then make the electronics sound super raw and original because that's what his background is. Mm. So it was it was really kind of a, it's, it's a dream collaboration. I love working with him. Um, he's a lovely guy, very chilled and brilliant uh, electronics. And he understands filmmaking. And that's, that's another thing that I guess can be quite rare for um, artists and people who have been in bands for a long time to then suddenly come into filmmaking. Um, and, you know, often, you know, they say they, he needs to then go and work with a film composer. But that's the thing that surprised me about Dave is, you know, he can score things on his own, on his own right. He understands storytelling. You can't write a score without understanding what we need to put across to the viewer, you know, and the music is a part of that. And yes, you could, I suppose, write an album, a kind of a library-esque album worth of themes for someone to then edit in. But you know, I don't like working that way and neither does Dave. And it's very important, I think, to one of these very complicated dramas where you have little pin drops and very important kind of beats within a scene. You need to understand filmmaking and storytelling, but you need to understand what music 
can do yeah. and push it to the limits, you know, to get the most out of every single scene. It a, sounds, a, sounds a little similar to the way Gareth and I have worked, actually, on this album. I was going to say, it sounds quite familiar. Yeah, well, you, yeah. you can, and the listeners won't be able to see it. You can probably make out a few synths behind me. <laughs> yeah, I've seen your Tinker Tuesdays. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it tends to be that if there's anything particularly synthy based I have a yeah. crack at it. And Gareth has sent me some stuff. In fact, to be fair, Gareth has sent me some stuff and said, you know, you might want to replace that. Feel free. Yeah, and very, a lot of it, very similar kind of process, and, I suppose. Yeah, and some of it has been, actually, I don't need to replace that. That sounds great. But then there's yeah. been other bits where it's like, actually, yeah, I will replace that because I know exactly what to do with that. Yeah. But also we're, we're trying to create this kind of continuity and DNA for the album. And so, you know, if we've used Dan's cat synth bass for a track, then we should use it here as well and, and create that same kind of sound. Yeah, definitely. And that's not only is it important in terms of the DNA for you both individually, and that's obviously is the same for me and David, it's for you guys you, and any collaboration. Mm. Uh, the DNA, it has to have part of the DNA of both people anyway. So you need, you yeah. need the voice yeah. of both composers. But that's that's actually really interesting you say about the using the same Simpsons and um, and whatnot because a lot of Dave's Simps are not necessarily like the um, Junos they're the the little boxes you know make yourself analog Simps and it is a nightmare to get them to make the same sound again <laughs> especially the amount of hiss and noise that comes out of those things yeah. you have to EQ the hell out of them and then you go onto another queue and you say we've got twenty minutes they want this queue there and I'm like ah <laughs> so then so that was actually quite interesting and nude to me was um, a lot of what we had to do on the capture was to actually um, to re-pitch and reuse some of the analog stems because some of those sounds you just couldn't... Yeah. Even if you take photos of all the settings, yeah, it's, you can't... it's not always the same. No, it's not. I, I think an essential purchase, if you buy an analog synth, if you buy an old analog synth, the first thing you need to do is you need to realise that at some point it's going to break and you're going to need someone to fix it because they do. I've, I literally have two being fixed all the time oh really they ju- i just have yeah. to i just have to swap them out and two of them are being fixed all the time um the other thing is you need to buy isotope rx because it's <laughs> it will just get rid of any sort of nasty noises that sometimes crop up in these things and they sometimes they yeah. are exceptionally hissy and sometimes you know it's like the the juno chorus which i absolutely love but it, it's like kit from knight rider you know, you're not playing anything from it, and you can just hear this. <laughs> yeah, and it all adds to the character, doesn't it? But you want to tame those moments because sometimes it's, especially when you're leveling up, you know. There you, are, you, get, you get to a point and you've got this lovely sort of held string note and you can just hear yeah. something bubbling away <laughs> underneath. It's, it's just idle, sat there doing nothing, and it's like, no, I really don't need that. I did a lot of this in the capture, but I, I love kind of automating EQs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's probably a bit of a cheap way of doing an RX <laughs> um, splice <laughs> to take out a frequency. But I do that a lot. Like in those moments where you have that, often it's in the top end, those yeah. kind of movements. I'm always automating in and out on the synths and all, even the string lines sometimes just to get rid of some of the hiss of the room. So, you know, those, that string line, I'm always automating. Because sometimes you can hear it go like, <laughs> as, I, oh, as, nice. I like <laughs> as I low pass filter out, which isn't necessarily a good thing. But <laughs> creates a unique sound but no i i love collaborating as well and it, you know if i've got an idea which i then send over to dan you know you, you could just worry 
oh, is it is he going to change it out of all recognition? But I love that. I love the fact that I'm sending something over to Dan. I just I really look forward to what he's going to do with it. And I think that's the the best bit about collaboration yeah. is that you're truly just leaving your ego at the door. You're sharing it all. You're just trying to make the best thing you can make. Absolutely. And yeah, that's a really good point, ego at the door thing, because we, we all get that opportunity to have our big egos when we're working on our own things. Yeah. And even that, maybe if you're doing your own library album and you can be full on ego, do your own thing, and then even then you're working on a television show or a film, you're essentially collaborating with another creative, whether it's a composer or a director. Yeah. It's still a collaboration, yeah. so you need to... There's always a compromise. And working on your own, it, it is exciting. I, I love working with directors and them not knowing much about music, but telling you not necessarily not necessarily use a kazoo instead of a flute, but, you know, make this more whatever, blue, make this more raw, make it faster, make it slower. I love that kind of stuff on my own, working on my own projects. But it's just a different thing collaborating. Yes. And it's so exciting to then go, look, it is a compromise, but what's exciting is that compromise between the two of us is going to come out with something super original and unique with the DNA of both of us. Yeah. And that is exciting in its own right. And I actually, I used to kind of be like, no, I don't know if I'm into that collaborating yeah. thing. I'm just going to sit in the box on my own in a room. <laughs> and it's uh, some of the proudest stuff I've done has been working with other composers. I think you find stuff out about yourself as well. And I think, well, I'm sure that I will take stuff away from what, we're doing here that will make me better in stuff I'm doing on my own. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. I want to learn anything. <laughs> Nothing. Dan, knows, Dan not. knows everything already. So well, it's, it's, it's kind it's of messed good. me up because Dave's so good with those electronics and I'm on purpose. If I do any electronic lines, I'll send him a really terrible, like, you know, if you knew you were going to an orchestra, you wouldn't necessarily push your production of your samples to the edge. You'd wait until you, you just write the good music and then get to the orchestra. Yeah. And I did the same with Dave and Simps. But now it's like, if I'm doing something on my own with electronics, I'm like, oh, I could do a Dave just to make <laughs> these sound good. Because I haven't put any, really haven't stretched that muscle so much going into mm. detail and I haven't got any hardware synths, you know, in my studio. So, but anyway, you know, just always collaborate. It's fine. Yeah, yeah no. Absolutely. Well recommended. So... It's a question we ask all our guests. What advice would you give your younger self or someone wishing to become a composer? Oh, gosh, that's a big question, isn't it? For me, for my younger self, I think one thing I didn't lack, and this is probably uh, probably advice to younger composers or people wanting to make it in this industry, and you guys, I'm sure, will relate to this, uh, but I was always massively positive. I was the most unpessimistic person on the planet. So... That kind of helped me not get down when I, people weren't replying to my emails or I wasn't winning pictures for things. So I suppose it's that kind of relentless attitude to not give up and keep going. So in terms of how I did it and how I think, uh, you know, my, where my breaks came from was having relationships with other composers. So that's one thing I often say to younger guys and girls at university or, you know, even younger starting out is, you know, you always have people saying, don't network with composers, don't do this, don't do that. But literally every break and every kind of useful advice I've ever got have been from more established composers than me. And just knowing Joe Kramer is the reason why he hired me to assist him on Mission Impossible. And these things just happen through knowing people. And whether it's, um, you know, the same way a director or a producer might not necessarily 
listen to your music before they hire you. They look at your credit list or there's a recommendation and then you maybe pitch for it and you get it or you don't. You know, I've been, I've got things where I know that, well, I found out later that they didn't even listen to my music before I was hired on it. It's the same way with composers. It's based on the relationship and whether they like you and if you get on with them. So I'm not endorsing and saying go out there and assist composers, but that is one really great option. And if you want to go the route, I didn't go that route. I went the route of emailing literally, I want to say a thousand, I was going to say hundreds. It probably was high hundreds of emails out every day or every few days to student filmmakers um, using crowdfunding funding sites like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. I'll just email everyone who has just started funding their movie, send them my portfolio and, you know, you get one reply in a hundred or something. And eventually you end up going, oh, so a composer approached me to do my film, my first ever short film. And then you end up working with that guy or girl and then they end up, one of them just needs to go off and have a career and then they take you along with, yeah. with you. Yeah. Um, but so if you go that route of, of trying to make it yourself and not go the assistant route, it's so helpful and essential to have those uh, more established guys and girls, composers to talk to and give you advice and probably throw you work here and there. Because mm-hmm. if you can get that, all it, you know, it changed my life getting a credit on Mission Impossible. I'd already done, I don't know, eight feature films and a couple of documentaries and 25 short films or whatever. And I was earning a bit of money. But as soon as I got a credit on Mission Impossible, suddenly everyone took me so much more seriously. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal, though, isn't it? Yeah, and even if it was just, you know, T-Boy, yeah. having the credit and just yeah. being there. And that's another thing. That's probably what... I don't know if I would have given myself that advice, but maybe maybe I would have, because I did those networking trips early, um, early-ish um, in my career. Uh, again, quotation marks around career, because, you know, I did five, probably five years of sh- uh, short films and feature docs, which were almost no budget, so I'd always be pushing for at least some money. Um, and then on the side, worked in television from time to time. You kind of need, I think if you're going to do it your own way, you need to have something else, whether that's doing a bit of sound design to earn a bit of money or teaching on the side. The quickest way to kind of get by that would be to jump in and assist a composer, which has its benefits. But I'm still the guy in who's always going to say, you're better off developing your voice by doing it your own way and making your own mistakes, scoring your own films, rather than sitting in a room with another composer for five, six years and then coming out with no credits to yourself, but loads of great, you know, assistant credit roles. Yeah. I'd always lean towards do it go at it yourself and if you can get the odd credit or relationship with some of the bigger guys in LA or in the UK and get the odd credit with them that is such a massive benefit because you're going to learn so much from them so much for being in that room on a mission impossible whatever it is but also still be doing your own thing and developing your voice I don't know if that's even is that advice it is it is and I think it's a, a, a very valid point about the positivity about not giving up mm. because as soon as you do give up that's when you've missed out and even if it takes 10 years and you are having to do other stuff as well i think one thing we've touched on is that actually the industry now is not what it used to be and if you are starting out in this you do have to have some sort of diversity so actually that's a really good start from the word go because if it if the career takes off the career takes off great you know, you don't need to do quite as much of the teaching or, you know, the orchestrating or whatever it is that you're, you're you know, sound design. Yeah. But if it doesn't take off, you've still got those other things and you've got other revenue streams coming in. I think I think that's really important. And when it comes to contacting people, I think you're right. I think 
contacting people is great, but it's about starting a relationship. It's not about emailing them or phoning them or stopping them and saying, give me a job. It is literally about, hi, how are you? I'm the, you know, and just starting a conversation. And I think you find that because of the deadlines and the pressures and everything else, people just want to work with people that they can get on with. Yeah. You don't have to be the greatest, most amazing prodigy from some sort of university or whatever. You just need to be really good to get on with, have a great work ethic and just know your stuff. And get it, you know. And get it, yeah. Get what the production's about and things. And be someone you like to have a pint with. Well, exactly. Good hint, (laughs) good hint. As you said that, that's literally what I live by now when I meet someone. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because that would be the advice I give to myself because it took me five years to realise... Um, how you talk to people, whether it's directors, composers you want to work with or anyone like that. And you just realise now, you know, and for the last five, six years, if there's ever been, and with Joe Kramer and some of these guys I know in the state, in LA, um, or even directors and producers, I just will never, ever be the person to say I'm a composer and I'll never be the person to say, oh, I'd love to work with you. Yeah, I would always just like, focus on getting to know the person and if it's someone you really admire and you're like oh, I really I know he's doing that film in a few months and he's looking for a composer I wouldn't be like oh so have you got a composer I'd just be having a conversation with him and wait because at some point he or she is going to ask you so what do you do or yeah. if they know you're a composer yeah. it's like oh are you busy at the moment it'll come from them at some point and yeah. that was that's that's one thing I'd always say to myself is early days when you're emailing people calling people mm. It is just about striking a relationship, yeah. whether you're going to work with them or not. It's a fine line, isn't it? Because you, you obviously, you're doing it for a reason. Of course you are, you know. But at the same time, you don't, this is what I mean. I mean, I get so so many emails and stuff where people are like, you know, oh, I'm, I do this, I do that. Oh, I've done this and I've done that. And I'd really like to work with you and stuff. And it's like, yeah, well, okay, that's that's great. And then you write this is this is another bugbear of mine. You take the time, because I always take the time to write back. So if people email me, I will always write back. So I write back, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't have anything at the minute, but, you know, there's this, you know, maybe mention Scorecast or whatever, unless, you know, get on there and, and do all that, and then you never hear anything. You don't even get a thank you email saying, oh, yeah. thanks very much for your for your time. I, I really appreciate you getting back to me. You, you don't get any of that, and it's just like, Come on! I had someone email me the other day saying, I've written this song, I've recorded it, I think it would do well in a TV show or a film. Uh, would you like to hear it? So, <laughs> so I, I wrote back and said, um, "Thank you know, thanks for getting in touch, that's, that's great. Uh, I think you might want maybe someone who's not a composer. <laughs> director? Might, yeah, maybe. a director or a producer or you know, someone like that. Um, but, you know, good luck. Uh, and they said, oh, okay, uh, would you like to hear it anyway? So I said, yeah, of course, yeah, great. <laughs> and I still haven't heard back from them. So. <laughs> well, there you go. But, you know, it's it's all worth it when you get that one. Um, like I just had an email last week or the week before, and I responded, as I was, as you said, Dan, like, you know, we all have to, we kind of have a responsibility to respond to everyone because people responded to us when yeah. we at the start of our career. Yeah. But you always then get that one that comes back and goes, oh, my God, thank you so much. I never get a response like that. Yeah. Like, I really appreciate it, especially, you know, if you listen to it and the music's like quite good and you're like, actually, this is this person's uh, quite talented. If you do spend the time and that person comes back and then 
then they've got that relationship with you, but you actually know they're a good person and they're trying really hard and it's going, they're going through a hard time. So it's always worth responding. But you're always going to have those people who are just mass emailing a million people yeah, with a generic know, and that's email. Annoying, you know? But that raises another good point, which is you just do not know what somebody's going through in their day. And obviously it's a little easier in person to find that to to see if somebody's having a bad day you can usually see although there are obviously days where we all hide the terrible days that we're having and stuff but on an email you don't know and then you reply to that person and you just give them it takes you five minutes and you do that that could be the one thing that keeps them going that could be just that little response oh actually somebody's responded to me just a you know a little bit of faith in humanity has been restored mm-hmm, exactly it's just common courtesy in probably one of the most mentally challenging industries as well but also in you know we're not it's not uh, a normal industry we're in it's no. one of the most mentally exhausting industries you can be in for anyone in the film industry and i know there are a lot of equi- equivalent industries you know acting but mainly film i think mainly within film and television we're all kind of in the same uh, pot and you know michael price always says um you know, it, he thinks it's on average probably about 10 years for someone to make it. And it takes kind of five to 10 years of hard graft before you actually get to that point where you're earning money to really be able to live and not be stressing yeah. <laughs> about every little thing and every little thing you don't get. And it, that part of that 10 years is that kind of uh, mental growth because it is, it is, you can't just getting beaten down and not earning any money and missing out on every single project is not healthy for the most positive person on the planet. Never yeah. mind someone who does struggle with whatever they struggle with you know yeah fantastic and on that note i think we need to thank ian for his insights into the tv and film industry and his experiences thank you very much ian for joining us it's been absolutely great pleasure i hope it was useful i've just blabbered on for an hour i think so apologies that's what we're good at oh perfect So we had a um, very nice comment on uh, Tinstagram from uh, um, previous guest, Steve Hughes. Mm. He was talking about last week's episode and said that uh, Jeremy is amazing. Loved working with him on the Casualty 30th anniversary episode. His score was stunning and watching him conduct a hundred piece orchestra live to the episode at a special screening at the Cardiff Millennium Centre was one of the proudest and most exciting moments of my so-called career. Well, how lovely. Oh, he's so modest, isn't he? He is very modest, yes. So-called career, so honestly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that must have been amazing. Yeah, I bet that was absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I've I, been to a lot of those sort of live things where they have, uh, you know, the movies playing and have an orchestra doing the yeah. score along, and they're just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, the precision. Yes, I know. It's, a, it's another level. It is another level. Mm. Not seen them. 2000s boy band reference. Though. Another level. Yeah, yeah. Um, all amazing Good. players, all amazing players, all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, is that a wrap? That's a wrap. That's a wrap. How do you find us? Makingasoundtrack.com will tell you everything that you need to know. Links to the podcast, social media links, and there's information about us as well. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it would make our day if you could give us a positive rating or review. And if you enjoyed this episode, hit that share button and recommend it to someone. So we'll see you after our little break in 2020. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Uh,
ペニューイエーハッパニューイエーイエーイイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエーイエ